In a small churchyard in Hertfordshire, there stands a small stone grave beside a crooked tree. Etched into the stone and covered in moss are the words, Peter, the wild boy, 1785. No one knows if his name was actually Peter. You see, Peter never talked, nor did he walk. He was found in a German forest in 1725, scampering around on all fours, completely naked, presumably abandoned by his parents. The following year, no more than 12 years of age, he was brought to London by George IV, where he was made a human pet for Kensington Palace, and a portrait of him still stands there to this day. People were fascinated by the young boy, who ate with his hands and had a small statute, hooded eyes, uh, thick curly hair, and refused to wear clothes. Peter was found in the Age of Enlightenment, and thus his discovery caused a sensation amongst thinkers who were already fascinated with the concept of what it meant to be human. At the time, people were questioning established authority and religion, and part of that discussion involved debates over how humans were distinct from animals, such as the concept of the soul. Peter was thus a fascinating creature for these topics. Was he a man or a beast, the missing link, as it were? He was unable to speak or be taught anything, and he curled up in the corners of rooms to sleep rather than sleep in beds. The fanciful explanation for his being as he was was that he was raised by wolves and was a wild child, akin to the status of a dog to those who observed him. As such, he was adorned with a gold-plated collar and engraved upon it was an inscription which read, Peter the wild man of Hanover. Whoever will bring him to Mr. Fenn at Berkhamstead shall be paid for their trouble. The shallow artifice of Georgian society failed Peter, as it did with many individuals with disabilities who ended up in circuses and were labelled freaks. Today, it is suspected that Peter may have had Pitt Hopkins, a genetic condition only identified in 1978, with symptoms including severe learning difficulties and developmental difficulties, including the inability to develop speech, along with distinctive facial features and, sadly, a difficulty breathing. Other undiagnosed conditions, which have wrongly been attributed to a person being a werewolf or werewolf adjacent, includes rabies, hallucinations, food poisoning, hypertrichosis, and, of course, lycanthropy, a rare psychological condition that causes people to believe that they're changing into a wolf or another animal. But the idea of a man-wolf hybrid, a person who not only acts like a wolf, but may in fact transform into a wolf, especially at the sight of a full moon, stretches back centuries. But where did this bloodthirsty creature come from? 
Well, enter, dear reader, into the realm where reality entwines with myth. Within the library of dark pages and eerie epistles, ancient knowledge waits, eager to be unearthed. Amidst the dusty tomes and faded parchments, forgotten secrets stir, and untold tales resurrect. Venture forth into this labyrinth of words and ink, where the boundaries of your beliefs shall be challenged, and chilling truths shall be exposed from the shadows. Welcome to my library, with all its twisted corridors, where the line between fact and fiction blurs, and the whispers of the past lure you deeper into the abyss of mystery and macabre. The earliest surviving examples of a man-to-wolf transformation is found in the Epic of Gilgamesh, circa 2100 BCE. Ishtar, the goddess of fertility, love and war, naturally had a lot of suitors and was somewhat a fan of love, as you can imagine. When Gilgamesh comes into contact with her, she tried to woo him, but after learning of the stories of how she treated her previous suitors, uh, Gilgamesh avoids them, becoming her next victim. You see, according to the tale, one of these suitors was a shepherd who was madly in love with Ishtar and made abundant offerings to her in the mountain shrine. She enjoyed the intention initially and encouraged him to continue until one day she grew bored of him and turned him into a wolf and then the innocent man was torn apart by his own hounds which was as you can imagine, later echoed by the tale of Acteon and Artemis. The tale of Gilgamesh is more of a direct transformation rather than a shape-shifting, metamorphosing, lycanthropic creature that we're more familiar with today. The werewolves we know of first developed in the ethnographic and poetic Greco-Roman texts, teetering between the real and the mythic, as all good folklore does. In 425 BCE, Herodotus's histories described a nomadic tribe of magical men, known as the Nuri, who transformed into wolf shapes for several days of the year in Scythia. As the Scythians stretched across Eurasia, from the Black Sea, across Serbia to the borders of East Asia, they were subjected to extreme climates, and as such, many were very likely to have used wolf skins as warmth, which may have been the basis for Herodotus' claim of their transformation into said wolves. But the idea that men could transform into wolves became quite quickly ingrained in Greek culture. In ancient Greece, the Lycaea was an archaic festival with a secret ritual on the slopes of Mount Lycaon, the Wolf Mountain, the tallest peak in Arcadia. This festival, which historians believed occurred annually at the beginning of May and involved only male participants, centred on the ancient threat of cannibalism and the possibility of a werewolf transformation for the ephoboi, the adolescent males. In the 2nd century BCE, Greek geographer Pausanias detailed the story of how King Lycaon of Arcadia, 
who, according to the founding myth, threw a banquet for the gods that included the flesh of human sacrifice, specifically that of a child that he'd sacrificed at the altar. In the version of the legend in Ovid's Metamorphosis, Zeus visits Lycaon, disguised as a human, but Lycaon tests Zeus's divinity to see if he really is the god. As part of the test, he kills a Melosian to hostage and serves his entrails to Zeus, who, disgusted, turns Lycaon into a wolf. In other accounts of the legend, like that of Apollodorus's Bibliotheca, Lycaon serves Zeus the entrails of one of his sons or his grandson, and Zeus overturns the table in a rage and strikes Lycaon's house with a thunderbolt as punishment instead. Rumours of the Lycaea ceremony that circulated involves details of human sacrifice and cannibalism. In 380 BCE, Plato tells a story in the Republic about the protector-turned-tyrant of the shrine of Lycaean Zeus. According to Plato, a particular clan would gather on the mountain to make a sacrifice every nine years to Zeus Lycaeus, and a single morsel of human entrails would be intermingled with that of the animal sacrifices. In this short passage, the character Socrates remarks, quote, The story goes that he who tastes the one bit of human entrails minced up with those of the other victims is inevitably transformed into a wolf. Whoever ate the human flesh was said to turn into a wolf and could only regain human form if he did not eat again of human flesh until the next nine-year cycle had ended. Literary evidence suggests cult members mixed human flesh into their ritual sacrifices to Zeus. Both Pliny the Elder and Pausanias discussed how the young athlete Demarcus participated in the Arcadian sacrifice of an adolescent boy. Demarcus was compelled to taste the boil's entrails and upon doing so immediately transformed into a wolf for nine years. Pausanias went on to emphasise that this was not a one-off event, claiming that men had been transformed into wolves during the sacrifices to Zeus Lycaeus since the time of Lycaon. If they abstained from tasting human flesh whilst a wolf, they would be restored to human form nine years later. But if they didn't, they would remain wolves forever. Though the idea of a man transforming into a wolf holds no basis in reality, the dark element of the tales is not entirely untrue. In 2016, a 3,000-year-old skeleton of a teenager was discovered on the side of Mount Lycaon in a sacrificial altar. Although many have urged caution over drawing conclusions from the discovery, its location and state do seem to give some credence to the idea of human sacrifices taking place there. Jumping forward a bit to circa 66 CE, we have Petronius's Satyricon and a story of a werewolf within a story. 
You see, within the story of Trimalchionis's dinner, uh, a tale is told by one of his guests, Nikros, about his time as an enslaved man. He tells the party how he fell in love with the wife of the innkeeper called Melissa. She treated him wonderfully and gave him anything he asked for. One day, when his master was away, he and a soldier went out amongst the tombs, and the soldier peed against a grave before stripping himself naked and then peeing in a circle around his clothes. After doing so, he transformed into a wolf and then ran off into the wood. Nikros went over and found that the clothes had turned to stone. He ran back to Melissa's house, terrified, only to find that Melissa had encountered a wolf just moments before. She tells him how a wolf had got onto the estate amongst the flock of sheep, but one of the enslaved peoples pierced the wolf through the neck with a spear. Horrified, Nikros ran back to the spot where he last saw the soldier. The clothes were gone, but a pool of blood remained. When he came home, he found the soldier being tended to by a doctor for a wound in his neck. Nikros never dared spend any time with the soldier again. In Virgil's adaptation of Theocritus's second idyll, in which an amateur witch weaves spells to bring home her errant lover, we meet the precedent of what is evidently a master sorcerer. Quote, Bring Daphnis home, my spells, bring him from the city. These herbs and these drugs, picked in Pontus, were given to me by Moiris himself. They grow in profusion in Pontus. By their power, I often saw Moiris change into a wolf and hide himself in the woods, and I often saw him use them to rouse ghosts from the bottom of their tombs, and spirit-sown crops away into another field. Bring Daphnis home, my spouse. Bring him from the city. Moiris, named here as one who could transform himself into a wolf, has a name bearing strong Egyptian affinities. Lake Moiris was an ancient lake mentioned by Herodotus, who thought it was an artificial lake built by a pharaoh of the same name. But it was a freshwater lake, and still persists today as a smaller saltwater lake called Bakhet Karan. Giving the master magician, an Egyptian name, was far more befitting, considering how Egypt had been regarded as an ancient home of magic since the time of the Odyssey. The ancient world didn't have an exclusive word for werewolf. The Greeks discuss exclusively men who turn into wolves as lycos. It was only until the 2nd century CE that the medical poet Marcellus Sidetes developed the term lycanthropos, lycanthrope, together with its corresponding abstract, lycanthropia, lycanthropy, to describe what he could today consider to be a variety of mental illnesses. The 4th century CE amulet handbook, Sirenides, tells that lycanthropoi can be cured if the afflicted fasts for three days and then eats the heart of a pure wolf. 
Then, in the early 9th century CE, chronicler Theophanes the Confessor tells how, in 803 to 804 CE, the Byzantine Emperor Nicephoros I sent some like-minded partisans, Lycanoians or Lycanthropoi, to blind the failed usurper Bardanes Turkus in the monastery to which he had retired. Here, the use of the term lycanthropoi was prompted primarily by Lyconians' evocation of the name of the myth of Lycaon, and its function here serves as a colourful image of cruelty and violence. George the Monk, aka George the Sinner, redeployed Theophane's wordplay for his own chronicle later in the century. Although he protested that the Lycaonians were acting without the authority of the emperor, in Latin the most employed term is versipellis or versipellis, meaning skin changer, but it often very much was used in terms primarily of werewolves, as demonstrated by the extract in Pliny's Natural History, circa 79 CE. In which he wrote, quote, "We should be confident in the belief that it is untrue that men are turned into wolves and restored again to their own form. Otherwise, we should believe everything that we have learned to be fabulous over the centuries. All the same, we will indicate the origin of the popular superstition that skin shifters, werewolves, wercipellis, are among those subject." To a curse, the derivation of the English word werewolf, likewise German Werwolf,、uh, was first attested in the form Werwolf in the writings of Bishop Wolfstan, circa 1000 CE, and then in the Anglo-Saxon ordinance of King Canute, circa 1017 to 35 CE. The old explanation of the word, which goes all the way back to Gervase of Tilbury, 1210 to 14 CE, derives ultimately from the Latin word "vir" or "via" (man), or from the English form "cognate" with it, so that "werewolf" would literally mean "man-wolf." However, the more accepted explanation. Of the were element derives from Anglo-Saxon werag, strangler, therefore outsider, in which werewolf would have signified outsider wolf in origin. So why wolves in particular? Whilst none of us know for certain, academics have posited their theories. Metzger declares, quote. The wolf had a very strong cultural image and was seen as the direct opposite of man. His behaviour transgressed all the laws of human civilisation. Gordon also explains how the Greeks regularly distinguished between one, the city proper, two, the cultivated land surrounding the city, settled with villages, and three, the largely uninhabited. And prescriptively unproductive areas beyond this, mainly hills and mountains, wolves belonged in this sphere in the wild. Interestingly, in folk medicine of all peoples, the wolf is 
specifically prominent. We learn from the 28th book of Pliny that the wolf flesh, fat, ashes, bones, liver, gall, jaws, excrement, and above all, its teeth, had wonderful healing properties and prophylactic properties. One certain hair in his tail is a sovereign love charm, but it's powerless unless plucked from a living animal. According to folkloric medicine, wearing a wolf's tooth around one's neck offered protection against all wild beasts, and a wolf's jaws, left open and placed above a door, also offered a perpetrator against all evil influences, such as murderers, demons, thieves, and sorcerers. Nordic folklore also has shown an interest in shape-shifting humans, and although they have tales of metamorphosis of man to bear and wolf, the wolf motif has proven to be most popular, and can be found in 14 Icelandic indigenous sources and two Norwegian texts. The most famous werewolf motif features in the Old Norse 13th century epic, the Volsunga Saga. The motif appears in the very first chapter of the saga, in the person of Siggi, who figuratively becomes a wolf, and in the fifth chapter includes the story of the mother of King Sigir, who changes herself into a wolf and eats the nine sons of King Volsung. The epic also details the story of the father and son, Sigmund and Sinfotli, Sinfotli was the child of an incestuous relationship between his father and Sigmund's daughter, Signy. Uh, though later in Beowulf, their father-son relationship is changed purely to be nephew and uncle. One day, Sigmund and Sinfotli find wolf skins in a hut in the forest, and after donning them, they live as wolves in the forest for ten days. The two separate agreeing that should they come into contact with more than seven men, they would howl to the other for help. During this period, Sigmund came across seven men and called out to Sinfotli, and with his aid, they killed them all. However, later Sinfotli came across eleven men, fought them off alone, killed them all, without asking for help of his father. Furious at not being asked at all, Sigmund fatally bites his son in the windpipe, and he is only saved by a raven sent by Odin to heal him. When they are finally able to remove the wolf skins, the pair burn them. An element yet to be discussed, uh, which is entrenched in contemporary werewolf lore, is the role of the full moon. Though many are quick to claim that the full moon motif is a modern invention, this claim overlooks the small detail in Petronius' story, in which the terrified Nikoros tells the dinner guests that the moon was shining like the midday sun. Though Petronius does not specifically explicitly say that this presumably full moon was had a causative effect in the werewolf's transformation, Potentially, there is enough there to argue that the detail is more than merely decorative. Similarly, Propertius's drunken board witch, Acanthus, is said to bewitch the moon adjacently before transforming herself into a wolf. Quote, 
She was bold enough to bewitch the moon and impose her orders on it, and to change her form into that of a nocturnal wolf. Then, in his Amores, Ovid associates his counterpart to Acanthus, uh, Dipsus, with the moon in her transformation. Quote, The face of the moon was deep red with blood. I suspect that she shapeshifts and flirts about among the shades of the night, and that her old body is covered with feathers. In his Metamorphosis, Ovid again makes a further association between the moon and the werewolf in speaking of the ingredients Medea throws into her cauldron for her rejuvenation potion. Quote, she added frost collected under the all-night moon, the notorious wings of the screech owl, together with its flesh and the entrails of the shape-shifting wolf, which changes its wild animal form into a man. The prescription, as well, in the amulet handbook, Cyanides, lists the dried wolf's liver is of succor, of the moonstruck and of the mad, while the wolf's canine tooth worn as an amulet protects them from bad dreams. These are a few of the oldest written tales and references to werewolves, but tales of their existence persisted throughout the centuries and around the world, from South and North American folktales to early Irish poetry and epics. The man who becomes a wolf symbolises outcasts on the fringe of society and those who submit to their brutal animalistic instincts. Whether they are cursed or born with the skill of metamorphosis, the werewolf is a secretive and elusive creature. Why they exist and how they exist was a mystery to the ancients, even in the construction of their own folklore. They never filled in the gaps they created, and for that reason, the werewolf still prowls the fringes of mythology, waiting to strike. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dark Pages and Eerie Epistles with me, Chinzia Dubois, the Lady of the Library. Today's episode was researched and written by me, and all citations and footnotes are included in the description box of the YouTube video format and in the episode footnotes. Today's episode was actually a request from Leila Dos Santos and Goblin Wizard, and a special thanks to my top-tier patrons, arch-capitalists Nicholas Reed and Andrea Brazil. The music was supplied by Epidemic Sound. If you would like more content from me, you can find me over at YouTube on Lady at the Library, where you will also find links to my Patreon, newsletter, and episode request form. Remember, dear listeners, as we delve into the realms of folklore, monstrous legend, and wicked creatures, and the haunted chapters of history, that you should keep yourself safe, as these dark tales hold dangerous and twisted allure. So stay bewitched haunted and forever curious and remember books save lives so keep reading Mm